back to Sports and Society for May 5th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle again. How you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Probably doing well because the Kentucky Derby is over. <laughs> and they, uh, I th- from what I understand, there was some sentiment to maybe burn Louisville down, but uh, you guys are still standing this morning? Yeah, the city's still here. Uh, and if you look out my window, nothing is different. Uh, partly because I do not live in a neighborhood that uh, is um, drawing of the clientele that the Kentucky Derby does. So in that way, I don't think my street even knew that the Kentucky Derby happened yesterday, uh, which is why I love my street. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my! What like uh, you know you're you have some family and you have your teach a school that's in a very different part of town how does it like how has this week been different than a normal week for you all uh well the first thing is that all the schools are out on friday uh Hmm. for oaks which is pretty fascinating uh and i think it just hit me this week uh uh mckay my wife to be which i'm thrilled about which i don't think we've mentioned on the podcast um (laughs) Yeah, she pointed out that it's uh, a busing issue, and the reason we're off school is because the buses can't get around uh, efficiently enough, and that's why we're off school on Friday, Hmm. Uh, which is interesting because um, in my world that I live in teaching and teaching at a private school, uh, that busing has nothing to do with us. All our students drive to school, and so in many ways, we're off school because most of our not most, a, a decent percentage of our community goes to Oaks. And a lot of Louvillians do that. Uh, I'm sure there are many Louvillians there at the Derby too, but on Oaks Day, the day before, there's probably 80% of the crowd are, is Louvillians. That's like the day that Louisville people go to the races. Um, yeah, and so in that way, uh, I'm always... Uh, just a little bit hesitant about what it means for about a thousand reasons, but uh, to support horse racing is difficult uh, for many reasons, and then the clientele that it draws makes it even more difficult, and yeah, it's just super problematic in so many ways for me, Uh, and so yeah, I usually pray for rain on Derby Day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, you know, I think... uh... Some of the public numbers that are finally coming out that have probably always been the case, but we're just now seeing about the number of horses that are dying in these races and in the setup for these things. Um, I think it's really cast a pall over the sport, and yet I also know that when I look at it and see the money involved, that nothing is going to change about it. And so it's just kind of depressing in many ways. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um there's a writer I really love whose name I cannot pull right now, which is kind of embarrassing, but uh, I want to say C.M. Newton. Uh, she is a writer. She lives in Berea, Kentucky, uh, and she just her most recent novel was The Sport of Kings. Yeah, Morgan, uh, C.E. Morgan. C.E. Morgan, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, uh, which I found to just be a beautiful book and her approach to the whole thing of the really complex relationship that Kentucky has with horse racing. Hmm. Uh, and I think when you talk to a lot of thoughtful Kentuckians, uh, you won't find absolutism. You'll, you'll just kind of find this, uh, this, the, a, a feeling you'll, you'll find them talking about how it feels, uh, to be uh, in a in a state that uh, kind of necessitates horse racing in many ways uh, for a lot of things to hold up, but also just this deep lament that it's it's certainly not ideal. In that, even more so that our our economic prospects hinge on horse racing and coal. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's tough. It's not easy uh, to make sense of all that. Hmm. But, uh, what were you paying attention to this week? Uh, well, in another like super complex area, um, I was really drawn to and continue to be in, interested in the 
saga of Castor Semenya, who I think we should just absolutely start this by saying she's been treated as absolutely abominably by the powers that be for a long time. Uh, and now she's had her appeal. Uh, and so I guess I'll give some background. She's a, uh, a woman who's running the middle distance races, 400 up to the 1500, uh, representing South Africa. Um, was born a woman, not a transgender uh, individual, but has unusually high levels of testosterone, which a lot of people believe allows her to perform at a higher level in athletic events. Uh, and the IAAF and some other bodies have made an argument that in order to make things more fair, they need to limit the amount of testosterone. And so if people have uh, abnormally high levels, they're requiring them to take uh, testosterone suppressants. Uh, Castor Semenya had appealed this, and that appeal was just turned down this week. Um, and what makes it all is just so totally despicable in so many ways, in my mind, is that the only races that this applies to are those that she is racing. Um, if this had been something that everyone had was subject to, I think we'd have a very different conversation. It might still be something that we disagree with, but the fact that they're just so openly transparent about making it just about her is really just terrible. And it's, uh, um, uh, you know, what it says about the broader women's sports world, I think is very interesting. And, you know, we've talked a long time ago about the complexities that are going to come with transgender individuals involved in, sports and these kind of things. But uh, I think what we can say is it's just in this particular case, they got it wrong uh, and then try to figure out what to do about it. Did the Federation release any information about what their talks were like and or what their vote count was? Do you know? I have not seen that. I have seen that they have claimed definitively the testosterone increases performance whereas studies suggest that that is not the case in this particular realm um i can see why they're making an intuitive leap there but again this is a case where the data doesn't support that mm-hmm. yeah it certainly raises so many questions doesn't it i i, I guess the like the central question, not the central question, a central question is where we get our information and where we lean toward for our authority and our knowledge by which we're going to make these decisions. And I have to believe that the IAF is uh, compromised probably in multiple directions when it comes to something like this. Uh, without even knowing the details, it just kind of reeks of that. I guess uh, would be my first takeaway. How dare you impunge the name or impugn the names of these respected individuals? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll put them right alongside FIFA in the Olympics. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it will be fascinating and probably a little bit sad and frustrating to watch how this story plays out um i guess i i am hopeful i i look to the grounds gained by social movements elsewhere uh to believe that the, the there's hope on the horizon but i can't imagine that it's going to go smoothly no and i think it's also i mean there's so many complexities to this you know her representing South Africa, which doesn't have the sway of many of these European countries. I have to think it'd be different if she were a French athlete who had the support of the French Athletic Federation behind her, that this would have turned out differently. And yet, yet again, we see someone uh, being unjustly treated because of any number of factors, but most commonly because people just don't understand what's going on. And that's just troubling. It also makes me think of how fascinating it would be to put her in any number of countries. Uh, like if she was Chinese, how the story would play out. If she was Russian, if she was American, if she was British, those narratives would all be really different. Well, yeah, and I think it, you know, this plays into a lot of conversations. You know, that's not, you know, we often think about this male and female divide as, um, either binary or very super fluid. And I think that there's some really interesting conversations that are coming with that and the recognition that people are very different 
all of us and that um you know there's a some studies that have been released that apparently um and I, this is a long time ago that I read this, so please forgive me if I'm butchering this, but that apparently a, a fairly large percentage of women, uh, female athletes have um, a third genetic chromosome, uh, that I believe I'm getting this right, that they have they're essentially an XXY, uh, which means that they still are female, but they have different characteristics, as you would imagine that that genetics happens. And so what does that mean for all this stuff? And Castor just seems to be like such an outlier that she's the one getting the, the boot for it. Right. Yeah. It's interesting too, to think about the reasons why something like a federation would not have space for complexity on something like this too. Mm -hmm. That, That I feel like that maybe is where the conversation is going. Agreed. Yeah. Well, what's been on your plate? You've been watching some NBA? I have. I've been catching a little bit here and there. And uh, two questions emerge for me. The first is the playoffs this year have struck me as being especially fierce in the sense of just how the games are being played and the overall just kind of tension that is surrounding all of it of course the nba playoffs have always mattered a lot to those that have been involved with in it but there just seems to be a little bit of a heightened sense of tension uh, and a sort of fierceness and i see evidence of that in how the games are being played i see that in the relationship between players and the media and then i see it uh, probably most clearly in the relationship between the referee and and the players and the coaches. And I worry that I'm overplaying it, uh, partly because it has seemed to be kind of zeitgeisty uh, that it seems like every morning there's an article about the referees and the players and the coaches and the relationship between those three. And so I I guess I'm a little bit hesitant, uh, a little bit skeptical about it, But I also watch it and I'm like, this looks a little bit different than how I've seen the NBA playoffs in the past. And so if there is a fundamental change uh, amongst us right now about how professional athletes that are becoming wealthier and more powerful and kind of have more of a salience in society than they've ever had before uh, and that they are forced to succumb to what the rules say, even with the stakes being raised, that that dynamic and that relationship between the rules and the players and those that enforce the rules and the players is changing, then it might be kind of significant. But I guess I would just come away saying I'm a little bit skeptical, but I also feel it to some extent. So... I don't. I don't know where. Where are you on the, on that? Because it, it's a massive story right now, at least in anyone that's following the NBA. It is, and you know, I think I break it down into two levels. That I think that your the level of contention and stuff is there. I think in all the series. I think, you know, but I think there's a difference in this Golden State Houston series, and there isn't any of the others. I mean, I you know the the Raptors seventy sixers series has been contentious, but it's largely been contentious based on the fact that Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid are a bit assholeish characters to some degree, and have leaned into that kind of villainous stuff, mm-hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. But I haven't seen as much of the ref stuff in those games. Um, meanwhile, though, this uh, I mean, even we saw a tremendous game the. The Nuggets um, uh, Blazers game the other night in four overtimes was just phenomenal to watch, and I didn't see that same level of anger with the refs there. And so I think that in my mind it comes down to this this Golden State Rocket series where you have the two teams that complain about the refs the most. Um, but there's been a lot of conversations that are interesting to me around. Um, that you know, and I don't like the Rockets. I find myself anxious watching. I couldn't watch the game yesterday because watching the Rockets makes me that frustrated. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, like I don't want to see that team that plays that way succeed. Uh, and the way that they are kind of just babies. I mean, this whole thing with releasing how many points that they cost when they were the ones that missed 27 straight threes. I mean, come on guys. Like <laughs> right. that's why you lost the damn game. Okay. Don't, don't blame it on the refs. Um, right. And then there's like, I, I kind of, the article that perhaps resonated the most with me this past week was that James Harden is breaking the playground rules of basketball. Yeah. The, the Rockets are essentially being that guy on the pickup court that calls fouls all the time and pisses everybody else off. Right. Um, and then like, you know, we know that maybe you call a foul, but then you ne- let the next two or three go because like, you don't want to cause a fight on the court. And yet the Rockets, their whole thing is based on that. And yet that's what, you know, the, I understand that's how the system is meant to be played, but that's not, uh, and the league is going to have to do something to address it. Cause it's not the way that the game in my mind should be played. It does. And that makes me think of all these, kind of colloquial phrases we use in sports uh in cricket it's the spirit of cricket in basketball we talk about respecting the game uh there's the one that's kind of covers a broader spectrum i think when we say like don't hate the player hate the game (laughs) right these things that are kind of ethereal and difficult to pin down and seem kind of um, transitory in a nature that they um, exist and everyone acknowledges they're there and everyone has an approach to them and one's approach to these more spiritual aspects that define the parameters of our game are often determined by our personality. And yeah, I think that hits it right on the head, right? The idea that like you don't want to be that guy or that person uh, in the sense that if you max out all that space that exists in any game that's being played, then you're saying a lot about yourself and what you're saying about yourself is probably not going to appeal to the masses. It's probably only going to appeal to those that have a stake in your success. And so I think that's what it comes down to for me is this idea that as the stakes get higher as defined by the money involved in these games, then I I just can't help but wonder if like, what do we do about this? Uh, It's like a serious problem. If in major sports at the highest levels, we're going to experience a game where people are maxing out the space for rules. Uh, And when that happens, it, it, it creates a lot of problems. You know, like, politically as it relates to laws as it relates to money but it also comes down to that thing that we're always talking about of like well sports are fun uh and no one wants to watch a whole court full of that guy uh that's not fun um no for me for me any i guess yeah i i just can't watch chris paul play basketball anymore because as skilled as he is, it's all overridden by the fact that I don't think he's ever had fun on a basketball court. He looks miserable. Um, I mean, he freaking, he, he nutmegged someone in the game. Um, and like, Hey, he missed the layup afterwards, which I'm like, you can't do that. You can't miss the layup after you nutmeg somebody. But right. also like, I don't think he was doing it because it needed to be done. He was doing it as a way of, humiliating that other person without then having fun on it. And that's just like struck me as this level of sadism that uh, I think is troubling to me, which I know is imbuing a lot into one moment, but uh, it really frustrated me. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I'm frustrated the whole time I'm watching the Rockets play and, and I want good things for them I, in a weird way of like, I don't want to hate on how they've gone about all of this because I think what they've done is look at what the Warriors did and said, okay, what are our options? And this is what they landed on. And so there's some part of me of just kind of that overall approach to it all that I find worthy of respect. But how they've gone about it in the day-to-day just doesn't seem like much fun. And it's not fun to watch them play. Well, no, and I think that the bottom line is I don't think, you know, UVA has faced plenty of criticism for the way that they play. 
um, and, you know, using a tool of playing slow to make sure that they stay in games that they might not have been in otherwise. Um, and yet there's a difference between like manipulating how the game is played. And so I look at, I would juxtapose the Rockets with the, um, uh, with the Bucks who I have not particularly enjoyed watching the Bucks in this playoff because the style of play is not attractive to me because of how many threes they shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, yet it's still enjoyable to watch that game on some level because they're not complaining every moment. And so I look at the Rockets and I'm like, you could try this system that you're doing without making it about trying to game everything mm-hmm. and just trying a different system and approach. Like that's a way to do it without being whiny. And we would, I think maybe not love it, but it at least gets you a level of respect that I don't think you've got right now. Makes me think of a, a buzz world, a buzzword that is out in the world right now that seemingly becomes more and more popular. And that is the disruptor. <laughs> And it seems like you could unpack a little bit here the nature of disrupting and kind of dig into how we disrupt and what is palatable in the nature of our disrupting. And so I would look at UVA, and this may just be due to our shared proclivities for how we watch sports, but that there's the type of disruptor that you and I, I think, are going to get behind uh, whereas I, I guess it's because I don't see them gaming the game. Whereas <laughs> I see the Rockets gaming the game, and I see them doing it for profit, which you could argue UVA is doing it for profit to some extent, but it, it, it is nothing compared to how the Rockets are gaming the game and for what reasons. Yeah, when the it's just it's so ticky tack at this point. I mean, they're putting so much pressure on those referees. And then I have to confess, I really think the league needs to reevaluate the transparency thing. That mm-hmm. I know we talked about this recently, but I am at this point 100% behind having all refereeing decisions only reviewed internally and not exposed to the public except in extreme circumstances. Mhm. See, I was thinking last night, too, of even just if you have grievances with how the game was called, having a policy in place that says, like, you can't do that in game time. Mm-hmm. Just shut up. It, I, I found myself, like, looking at the screen last night being like, sh- I felt like a really old man. I was like, shut up. Just Just play the game and let the game finish. And if you have a problem with it, submit a grievance like we all do at work if we have a problem with like how things are playing out but finish the game and do your job because let's not forget about why you're here you're here because people are willing to pay a lot of money to watch you play mm-hmm. so just play the game it's not like you're light like i don't know i i guess I, it, it's complicated but I, i'm frustrated with the throwing your hands up in the air after every single call well, I do feel the need to just call Michael Lewis out on this a little bit and his freaking uh, terrible point about how this is about privilege because mm-hmm. I want to make the very clear. It's not just the star players that are doing this. Patrick Beverly does this more than anybody, and Patrick Beverly doesn't belong on anybody's list of uh, 50 best players in the NBA. Um, you know, this is this is universal in many ways. I agree. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think Michael Lewis missed that, but I will point out, as we predicted, I've enjoyed all the other episodes of the podcast. (laughs) Well, good. Maybe that just means you need to research those other episodes more to figure out whether he's actually right or not. That's probably very true. I like that. (laughs) Well, before uh, before we just get ourselves in total trouble for hating on the Rockets, um, you want to talk about some soccer? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so you want me to talk through it a little bit? Yeah, why don't you do that? Sure. So we're talking about a piece this week that was written by Wright Thompson for ESPN. It's called Liverpool Rising. And there's a lot to say about this article, partly because it's long-form journalism uh, in a way. 
And what Wright Thompson has done is he has tra- traveled to Liverpool to be on the ground uh, in this week leading up to what some are saying is a very fateful week for the Liverpool Football Club in the sense that uh, they are in the running for the Premier League, which would be the first time they would win the Premier League since the Premier League uh, was established in 1992. And they are one of the most storied uh, soccer organizations in the world. And so that they haven't won the Premier League is significant. And they have won five Champions League titles in that time. So that they haven't won on British soil uh, has some significance uh, that can be unpacked. But he also travels there because they are in the running for the Champions League again. And then, as Wright Thompson does, uh, he is very uh, set on kind of revealing and unpacking through oral history, through personal anecdote, uh, what these sports stories mean mean for the people uh, that live in places. And so it's that piece that always stands out to me about Wright Thompson. Uh, I have complex experiences and emotions in regard to Wright Thompson as a writer, uh, which I kind of want to dig into and see what you think about. But uh, essentially what he does is he paints a very sentimental picture of wherever he goes. And this is what he does. He's kind of a destination journalist in many ways. And he is a Southerner. Uh, he is uh, based in Oxford, Mississippi, and is very dedicated to the is. South. I don't know why yeah, that makes sense, but it totally makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and insofar as uh, I, I want to applaud this piece, that if you want to buy Wright Thompson books, you can only buy them from the independent bookstore in Oxford, Mississippi, uh, that uh, the only place you can get his books elsewhere would be through buying them used. Um, So if you want to get a Wright Thompson book, you have to buy it from the independent bookseller in Oxford. And so he is very dedicated to the South. And I think in many ways, uh, I mean, what a concept to try and unpack uh, the South. Uh, It's (laughs) impossible. Uh, And, It's kind of one of those things you can cherry pick and say like, oh, this is Southern or at least meets my definition of what I think is Southern. Uh, But I can't help but say that in his pieces, I always pick up a lot of Southernisms. And so even in this piece about Liverpool, I see a lot of that. Uh, That he is liberal and progressive comes through in this piece too. He, He goes into talking about the role that colonialism plays in the Premier League and in Liverpool's relationship with the Premier League and with the broader scope social, political, economic issues that are present in England and the United Kingdom today. Uh, So he really digs into all of it in in a lot of ways, but he also leaves a lot out. Um, But nonetheless, as for the actual sports part uh this is a really fateful week for liverpool they could win the premier league and the champions league uh, and then they're they... not winning the champions league at this point but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean that's I, that's happened before uh winning four three at home against barcelona i feel like is mirac would be miraculous uh in the background here is they lost 3-0 uh to barcelona at barcelona and so they'd have to win um Probably more than four three, wouldn't they? Would four three do it? No, I three, mean they'd have to win by like four zero or something. Yeah, like they'd that. have to win by at least three. They have to score at least three goals, and then for if you have to add two more, if Barcelona scores right. on them, so they need to, to win like three four zero or five one. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, that's a tall task, but I feel like that's happened in Champions League before. I remember the year Inter Milan won it, they did that. It's not. I mean, Liverpool fans will tell you that they came back from 3-0 down when they won a few years ago, but it's just not going to happen, not with this Barcelona team. Yeah, Messi makes it difficult. Um, So within all that, there's a lot to talk about. so I'm kind of open to wherever you want to go with it or maybe point out a couple things and then we can dig into them. 
Yeah, so, you know, I just, uh, I was saying before we came on air, I did not particularly enjoy this article. And I think it's because for me, it's a vast oversimplification of things. And that is always really troubling to me. I was reading some Twitter responses and it's, there's a number of folks that are really saying wonderful things about this article. And I have to confess that it, it strikes me as the kind of essay that essayists love and people on the ground are like, mm, I'm not sure you really get it type thing. Um, yeah. And so one of the biggest things for me is just this, I, I think we can go back and start from the very beginning and just say that this kind of writing that fuels this narrative that sport is more important than it actually is, I think is troubling. Um, and I think it's also something that places like ESPN, they live in and breathe this stuff. And so it's something that I concerns me when I see an article like this, because as important as I think it could be, um, we've totally just glossed over the entire part of the Liverpool community that doesn't care about soccer. We've totally glossed over the conservative part of Liverpool. We've totally glossed over the real economic struggles and hardships and just kind of glorified the struggle in many ways. So I just, uh, there's a lot of things that I find troubling about the whole piece. Yeah, I agree. And I think ESPN's version of this type of story is what is problematic. And I point back to a line that I remember from a Wright Thompson article that he wrote years ago about traveling to England for a test match between India and England. And he starts the arg article with the line that says, ESPN covets the international sports market. So the boss, in capital letters, dispatched me overseas for a cricket match between India and England. <laughs> and I, I, I find that antagonistic, I think, that line in many ways that it's Wright Thompson saying, this is kind of crazy. Um, I, I kind of don't know what's happening here, but I love sports and I love writing stories and telling stories and making them as dramatic as possible. And so I think you would call this nonfiction, long form essay journalism, but he makes it fictional, <laughs> uh, in many ways. I, I feel like I'm reading a Southern novella, uh, whenever I'm reading his articles and I think that's what ESPN has hired him to do. And I think they love it because I think it is uh, part of their mercenary-like approach to overtaking the sports world uh, and or the sports media world. Uh, and so I think he does exactly what they want him to do. And so that raises a question for me of would we approach Wright Thompson the same if he was writing for The Guardian but then I think the follow-up question is, would he write a piece like this if he were writing for The Guardian? No, and I don't think so. And I think, uh, I think that's an interesting point because as I'm, you know, as I say that this is this, it's a remarkably well-written piece and like constructed in a way that is really compelling. And there are pieces of it that I find really powerful, um, and yet the overall all of it together doesn't work. And so I'm just thinking like a different editor, a different audience, I think could have pulled this together in a way that made it a really interesting story. I mean, the story of Liverpool in a time of Brexit, um, doing all of this stuff and being in this place and consistently coming second, it looks like, um, in a world where they don't quite know what makes sense is a story that could have been really confidently told and yet what we wind up with is a much more uh, I mean the Hillsborough story is really compelling and I think in some ways it's been used in this case as a uh, as a prop towards a bigger initiative in some ways and that's that's just difficult for me yeah and maybe even to zoom out and try and put some names to that discomfort that I felt as well it's it's something about an American writer writing for a Disney corporation about the labor movement as it exists in a formerly labor city that just is a little, there's just too much, too much dissonance maybe that's not being functionally approached. Well, I think that there's a glorification here too. I mean, we've, 
these fans that, you know, he remarks that a lot of the people he's talking about would be considered ultras in other communities, and yet we've glorified them here and kind of held them up. And yes, it's been a horrible go for them for the past few years, but it's not like there aren't major problems. I mean, he kind of tells this story about this guy that was riding one of the buses and they just kicked him off the bus in the middle of nowhere. And that's kind of told us this thing that we should appreciate. And I'm like, no, these are the kind of things that we need to, um, this is kind of part of society that we should probably be trying to root out more than anything else. Exactly. Yeah. And the Brexit point I think is significant, uh, in particular to a part where he is talking to someone that he's met along the way. And this person is talking about Liverpool's relationship with England. Uh, and I think it's worth kind of reading it at length here. So there's just uh, a few sentences that I found really interesting and that could have been unpacked in light of Brexit. But the paragraph goes... Um, He's quoting this guy, Collins. He says, Liverpool has never really looked toward London. It looked toward America. It's looked to Ireland. You know what we say, Scouse, not English. And that goes back to the 80s. We used to go to Wembley to cup finals, and we would go down in the mid-80s, and they'd play God Save the Queen. We used to sing You'll Never Walk Alone over the national anthem. And I remember for years and years, commentators would say on live televisions, this is disgraceful, these Liverpool fans, you know, disrespecting the Queen. But she's living in her gilded palace, and there's people struggling to make ends meet in Liverpool, and they expect us to sing the anthem. So that is a really nice anecdote. If you want to talk about Liverpool as this socialist semi-communist city that was pushing it back against the monarchy and London wealth accrual. But it's also kind of shying away from the complexity of modern Liverpool, which is becoming kind of this like uh, hipster enclave uh, of England that's rebuilding these former labor centers into kind of these new age uh, music and art centers. Um, Even more so, it shies away from the fact that uh, Liverpool somewhat, I guess compared to the rest of the country, um, thought Brexit was stupid. But there was also a large swath of people in Liverpool that thought it was a great idea. Yeah, and I I mean, I just, I hadn't put these two together before we got on air. But the fact that he didn't, I don't think once in this article mentioned Brexit in this context is really kind of staggering. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, But it is, um, you know, I think it's also worth noting here just how much he's paying this picture. And there's an article here at the beginning. Maybe I can't remember where it was, but it's something about how um, the city or the, you know, the team Liverpool uh, represents its city more than other places do. And I just, I... I've long rebelled against that kind of sentiment. In this particular case, it doesn't seem true at all. Uh, I mean, this is if this is truly what you think, then how can a uh, a team that's owned by Fenway Sports Group, populated by multi-million dollar athletes, um, really represent the city that as you have described it in this sense? It just there's a dissonance there that I think is well worth noting. And I think to give him some credit, I think he approached that, but I don't think it was fully formed. So he never mentions that Liverpool is owned by Fenway, and he never explicitly mentions that these players are multimillionaires from all over the world that probably have very little interest in labor strikes in Liverpool from the 1970s. But he does kind of play on some of those themes and concepts of home and place and belonging and even the spiritual elements of it. And sure enough, if you're looking for those things in Liverpool, you can easily find evidence of them. And so I guess there's just a little bit a lack of functionality maybe that you and I would appreciate and look for in a story like this that is at least presenting itself as this comprehensive, complex narrative of Liverpool as a sporting city. Um, But 
I wonder, and this is a genuine question, where, where is redemption in something like this? Is, is there a part of this that where we can say like, okay, this is, this is cool, I'll allow for this, or I appreciate this part of it? Um, yes. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's an important story, um, in the sense that the Hillsborough story is important. And I think that yeah. the more that we can mention that and kind of make that clear. And in fact, I kind of, um, I guess if I were to, his editor pitching him this story, um, it'd be interesting to me to see this solely as a, Hey, coming out of the fact that we're just about to have court cases about this, what does this mean, this title race mean for this community? could be a really interesting way to do it. But anytime we're going to remember that and dig into that and share more about that with a new audience, I think is important. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that's where I find a lot of redemption is that I would imagine there are many visitors to ESPN's website that are introduced to a more complex way of understanding sports because of Wright Thompson. Mm-hmm. And I, I I have to believe that to be the case. Uh, and I'm going off just personal experience of many of my friends that uh, are right in the mainstream channel of American sports. And they really enjoy when a Wright Thompson article pops up on the front page of ESPN. Uh, and you could argue that I think the other way of kind of like, well, maybe that's not a great thing, but... I don't know. The idea of your mainstream American sports fan being privy to a pro-labor, pro-left, pro at least a little bit more complex understanding of how sports exist in a place uh, could be a good thing. But then at the same time, kind of missing out on some of the key functionality pieces that we would look for. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime we're going to rake Margaret Thatcher over the coals, I'm kind of game for that. Yeah, um, that was kind of exciting to read, but also a little uncomfortable. Uh, the story here is that the Liverpool fans chanted in like glorious celebration when Margaret Thatcher died. Yes, it's a you know it's and I think that's the biggest takeaway for me in some ways and understanding that complexity. And I think this gets back to the very core of what we're doing here. And so I wonder, you know, when Liverpool is in this terrible place, um, you know, the docks have closed up. Um, apparently I did not know this, but shipping containers were what ruined it for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but when all of this happened and, and now you're in this bad place in Liverpool, the football club is all you have to hang your hat on. And then, you wind up in some of these situations that they wound up in both in Hillside and, and in Europe and beyond. Um, it really draws questions for me about the appropriateness of sport. And this is where it gets back to, I guess, my point about we overinflate the importance of sports. And I think that's troubling. And I think what happens here is that anytime when sport becomes as important as I think it was when the Hillsborough incident happened to this community that means that something has gone wrong uh, yeah in that community and that this is all they have left to hold on to and i think that that's um something that i really take away in the sense that this there's some really troubling aspects of this and yet i can also understand uh, most of it that there's you know their disdain for the sun and margaret thatcher is um you know rooted in some very real and prescient things uh, and yet their response to it is also something that is uh, takes me a little bit aback and is troubling. Yeah, I, I'm thinking too that where I can give him credit is unpacking that which is still driving people to be these ultras and also him unpacking and pointing to the fact that for a you know, a quote unquote ultra to attend a Liverpool match is becoming impossible. Hmm. Uh, And so that uh, there are these viewing parties that have now been set up uh, by different organizations throughout Liverpool and that Jurgen Klopp himself has attended some of them. 
And Wright Thompson points out that Jurgen Klopp attending a viewing party of people that used to be hardcore fans but can't afford to get into the stadium anymore is part of Jurgen Klopp's success and part of why he's ingratiated himself to such a large extent with the Liverpool community. But at any rate, it still are things that I think you and I would find very problematic within the world of fandom and within the world of aligning uh, unabated capitalism with sports uh, that could have gone a little bit farther, maybe. Um, but even I, I'm still willing and think it's worthwhile to point out that uh, this is right, Thompson, on the front page of ESPN. It was up there for two days on the front page uh, and saying that you can't talk about this week in Liverpool soccer without talking about slavery. And, and so I think that is super valuable, mm-hmm. um, you know, of saying like we need to keep contextualizing, especially historically, uh, how we are digesting these sports moments that uh, are way more complex than we think they are. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else that stands out to you? Um. I will just say, uh, and I think this is an interesting dilemma that what we have here in in the EPL and most of these major European clubs are that they actually started as clubs. And I think that that's something that is worth noting here because I think it is what led to and continues to lead to some of the problematic insularity that these things feel. And so I just want to say that you know, I think that part of what troubled me most about reading this is that these are people that have cut themselves off from many other places. And so when I hear someone say, you know, um, identify as, um, I, I can't pronounce the word, but I identify as being from Liverpool more than anything else, that mm-hmm. really troubles me because it, 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 you know, I am a big proponent and think that we all need to start thinking of ourselves as global citizens. And so when we start thinking in that even more compartmentalized way, which I think is always what's going to happen with clubs, um, I think that that's uh, something that I, I think leads to things like the current breakdown and the ability to have civic dialogue. And that's something that is, I think, worth noting in this context. Yeah, I obviously am very much with you on that. And it points me to the fact that and he pointed out in the in this article that there is a new club that has been generated out of Liverpool's experience the last couple of years which is uh I think it's Liverpool City FC mm-hmm. uh which if you are a communist or a socialist you can become a member of the club for 5 pounds uh <laughs> And uh, see, kind of doing the Wimbledon AOC thing of being owned by the people. Uh, And I think they won their division this season. Hmm. But Well, very good. I think that's all I've got. Same here. Well, what have you got coming up this coming week that you're looking forward to? Uh, I will definitely pay attention to the Champions League. Uh, I think this next leg is going to be exciting, and I'll look for a miracle. Uh, here and there. Um, For America. I think Ajax Barcelona is what I want to see, man. I want to see these damn English clubs in there. You're in. You're on the Ajax, Jane. I Man, I like this Ajax team. Yeah, it is exciting. They're going to get destroyed by Barcelona if they get there, but it'll be an exciting game. Yeah. Uh, I'll also be paying attention to Formula One this week. Uh, They're in Spain, and so far a Mercedes driver has won every race. And there's part of me that's kind of conniving and uh, (laughs) looking for some absurdity in Formula One, more than it already is absurd. (laughs) But uh, I think it would be funny if Mercedes won every race this year. Uh, So having never pulled for a Mercedes driver to ever win a race. Uh, I think I'm going for kind of the uh, uh, anarchy approach, and I'm going to say I think it would be funny if a Mercedes driver won every race this year. So we'll see if Lewis Hamilton or Botas can do it this week. I mean, there's a heavy chance for it. So They, They really could. Ferrari hasn't really been close, and Red Bull's not close either. So it could really happen. But what about you? 
so the Giro d'Italia is starting up this week's first cycling grand tour of the year. And it's always kind of exciting because you have no idea what kind of form these guys are coming in with. And so there's going to be something surprising that happens in the first week or two that's uh, going to be quite uh, entertaining. Are there new? Are there any new up-and-comers that are challenging the old guard for principal riders? Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of guys kind of in the midst of it, and there's there's always a couple folks that spring up that you don't – so, I mean, there's some names, like, you know, we've got Enric Moss and Miguel Angel Lopez that haven't won a tour yet but, like, have shown the capacity to be able to, and yet it's – the thing with cycling is, of course, that you just never know. Like right. some of those names could just not have it with this, which is what makes somebody like Froome, as much as I hate him, uh, so incredibly impressive is to just have it every time you go out is so hard. Yeah. It makes me think, have you uh, listened to Lance Armstrong's interview with Alex Honnold? I have the not. Free, the no. free solo guy. I'm, I did not know that existed. I'm very intrigued. Yeah, it's. I honestly was going to pitch it to you as something we could maybe talk about because we were wanting to talk about free solo and uh, we're always intrigued by Lance for some weird reason. But um, it was a really interesting conversation for many reasons, one of which was Alex Hanald was like posing questions to Lance Armstrong at times and mm-hmm. kind of turning the interview around. But it was also really compelling to interest and interesting to listen to two people that are so far into their sport uh talk to each other about like what it's like at that level Hmm. uh but one thing that that what you just said made me think of was lance armstrong was saying that oftentimes when they got to the bottom of a descent he would look around for anyone that spoke english because he was dying to talk to someone about how scared he was Hmm. uh and saying like that was terrifying right were you just really scared because i was just really really scared um which I find interesting in exactly what you just said, that like someone like Chris Froome, who's always there, that means like Chris Froome is facing that fear all the time and potentially facing it in a way that is making him better than everyone else, which mm-hmm. is like more than just like churning out power, you know? Well, it is interesting. You know, I think about um, Thibaut Pino, who's a French writer who's got a ton of talent, but he missed a few years early in his prime because he just got uh, had an overwhelming fear of the downhill portion hmm. uh, and still has it to some degree, but it went to all kinds of links to try and fix it. So like got ride alongs in formula one cars to try and get used <laughs> to the speed and like developed yeah. all these tactics where he would go to the front at the top of a climb. So he could kind of set the pace on the way down. And um, this is a fascinating way of trying to mitigate that that thing that we don't think about races being one on the downhill, but they very often are. Yeah. That's cool. But that's all I got. All right. Well, hopefully by the time we record next, this Rockets Warrior series is over so we can stop worrying about playing to the refs. That's my Seriously. Anyway. Well said. <laughs> um, but if you haven't uh, given us a rating and review yet, please do so and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, but we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, man.